1: To be the person I want to be, to get to that dream, it's going to also take one small little choice on a daily basis in the right direction. And when things come at you, whether it's family and it sounds exciting or a business opportunity that sounds exciting, it's like, I need to know what my North Star is because how the hell I got stuck for eight years, I kept telling myself, oh, well, one day, I'll do this when my husband's happy. I'll do this when we have enough money. I'll do this when I have children. And we all know the when may never come.
0: Hi. Hi guys, welcome to another episode in our Mastermind series. I have pulled together today's conversation specifically aimed at those of you who are building in your career. And your career could be working for someone else or building your own business, but today we're gonna hear from some of the strongest, most powerful, most successful female powerhouse entrepreneurs, and professionals inside of organizations that I have ever spoken with. And I intentionally pulled moments where they talked about how hard it is to navigate environments where they are trying to make their way in an industry that is not necessarily built for people like them. Today, you're going to hear from Lisa Bilyeu who along with her husband, Tom, founded Quest Nutrition. You're gonna hear from Phoebe Robinson, who has spent so many years building her name as a comedian in environments and in spaces that do not often make a place for women like her. You're gonna hear from Katie Quinn, one of the most popular episodes, seriously, that have ever been on my podcast, where we talked about what it looked like to build your career? And how do you do that when you're a mom? And how do you do that when you're just starting out? I'm going to share one of my very early interviews with a woman named Mary Beach. She was the CMO of Kate Spade and has gone on to do insane and amazing things in her career. You're going to hear from Marcia Kilgore, who has founded and sold multiple businesses for just just pots of gold, guys. Like, this is one of the most successful entrepreneurial women I know. And look, this is a conversation that everybody needs to hear. So, it's not just for women. But the thing that I know about us, guys, is that when you are a woman, it is different. There are different things we navigate, there are different perspectives that we need to hear from. And that changes depending on who you are and how you show up in the world. So I'm hoping that today's Mastermind episode is something you will really dig. And if you think that it's helpful, as always, we would so appreciate it if you would share it with your own community. And to that end, here's a bunch of badass women talking about how you can be a badass.
2: My name is Phoebe Robinson. Um, If you recognize the name, it might be from Two Dope Queens, the podcast I did with Jessica Williams for four seasons, and then... Two seasons of HBO specials. I also wrote two books. Mm -hmm. You can't touch my hair and everything. And everything's trash, but it's okay. Uh, (laughs) (laughs) um, And I have another podcast that's currently on hiatus called "So Many White Guys" because there were just so many white guys in podcasting. So I wanted to flip the numbers. And just yes, yes. yeah, that's why. That's
0: why I got into Mm -hmm. this was I kept saying everything I know about business I taught myself, like Mm -hmm. Google or YouTube or whatever. And I just got so tired of, man, where I know there are women who are leading in business. Why can't I hear their stories or why aren't they being interviewed? And after complaining about it for two years, I was finally like, okay, I'll just try.
2: When I first started doing stand-up, it was very, you know, even doing five minutes on stage was just sort of terrifying. So I write everything out and then I would just sort of stand in front of a mirror and I would rehearse everything, even the, how's it going, guys? (laughs) (laughs) Great drink. Like, everything. Pause for it. It's so real, though. Yeah. That's that's how you learn. Yeah, and I was just so sort of dorky. So I I really would just really try to memorize every single thing. And now I'm about 11 years in, so it's a lot of I will have an idea for a joke. Maybe write down a few lines and then sort of talk it out on stage to see if there's a little, like, kernel of something. And then I'll go back home and really sit down and punch it up and expand. Like, I have this joke that I'm working on right now that started out being like two minutes long and now it's like 10 minutes. Oh, wow. Yeah. and it's That's just, amazing. Yeah. It's a joke I've been working on for, I don't know, five, four months. I started performing in Boston maybe 2009, 2010. I would take the bolt bus one dollar I wait till there's like a one dollar ticket and because <laughs> I you know I was so broke yeah. and I would stay on a friend's couch and I would go and do these little show I, I would do shows in a hotel lobby and a Chinese restaurant really just not glamorous yeah. at all I am a workaholic and <laughs> which I'm sure yeah yeah I got you and uh, when I started doing comedy I had a day job so I would do the day job and then I would go do an open mic or a show maybe get done around midnight, go back home and do the, do the same cycle all over again. And I was just, because I, I studied writing in college, and I was thinking, you know, it might be kind of fun to just have a, a, a an outlet to blog or whatever and not have it be necessarily career-dependent, but just more an exercise in me becoming a, a stronger writer. So I started this blog called Blaria, which stands for Black Daria. And this was <laughs> maybe... 2010, 2011, and I was having a lot of fun doing it three days a week. I am writing a blog post. It's got to be like 2,000 words. And I just really put myself in this own schedule. Of course, it was like unpaid. I wasn't making any money. Yeah. Um, But I just really kept sort of doing that. And I wrote this blog post about... I remember when Girls came out and I wrote a blog post about it. And I had a lot of feelings about the show. (laughs) (laughs) Not a lot of them were positive. And um, I remember Huffington Post was like, oh, we really like this article. Can we like reblog it on our whatever? And of course, I didn't get paid for it, but I was so excited. I was like, this is really cool. Yeah, And I had a manager at the time, and I'm no longer with her. Um, And I told her, I was like, you know, like, I think writing could be another path for me, and I really would like to write a book. And she goes, well, you're not famous, so no one would ever want to read a book by you. Oh, my. And I was thought, oh, okay, well, yeah, there are a ton of non-famous white guys who have books about fucking nothing. (laughs) (laughs) And I was just like, I think that's wrong. And so a few months, maybe like nine months later, my lit agent, Robert, he reached out to me. We hadn't worked together yet. And he had heard about me and he read my blog. And he goes, I think you're a, a writer. He's like, I'm pretty sure you already have a book deal somewhere. But if you don't, I would love to grab lunch and sort of figure it out. And I thought this is the sign. Yeah. Like, I'm very much into signs, and so we met up. And he's amazing. He works at um, a great uh, uh, publishing company in New York, and he, you know he's queer, and so he really likes to support women of color, mm-hmm. queer people, mm-hmm. and just people of color in general, and get their stories out because he's like publishing is so white Absolutely. and male and straight, yep. and your story is not often yep. told. Um, and we just really hit it off. And that really sort of changed my career trajectory where I, writing became this really huge part of whatever I do now. Yeah. The second book was easier to write. The first book was really hard. Like, I was crying a lot. I was like, this sucks. Like, I'm not good enough. Because you're working
0: through stuff that you're writing about, or because the process sucks. So it's just much. the
2: process yeah. sucks. And it's just sort of, you know, what was my book deal? It was what, 25000 mm-hmm. And which is. Nothing. And yeah. so when I, I sold the book and then when I started working, I started getting paid for it. I broke up with my boyfriend and I had to move out and I truly had no money because I was just freelancing and blogging. And so whatever little I got from my book advance was just so I could like move into an apartment yeah. and get furniture and so it was really hard to sort of have to start over in a way where, I, you know, I thought this was going to be the person I was going to marry. and It was going to be fine. Um. And so that felt really hard because I was I was thirty and I felt like I was going backwards again. Mm. And I was like, I'm still in massive amounts of debt, and I'm writing this book that, you know, my take home for twenty five grand is what. Yeah. Fifteen.
0: Fifteen. Yeah. If you're lucky. If you're lucky.
2: So I'm like, okay, I'm not making any money doing this. I'm freelance blogging. I'm doing stand-up and no one cares. I'm 30. I should be a little bit more ahead of the curve. And so it really felt, I don't know, I just felt like, what am I doing? And so when the book was a success, that really felt good. And it felt like, okay, it was great to sort of follow through on my instinct. But it it was just really hard to sort of be in a place where you can't really support yourself and you're like, well, I'm writing a book. Because that sounds... It that sounds, sounds sexy yeah. and like
0: oh you're must be raking in the yeah. millions and you're like no I'm starving and eating top yeah. ramen yeah it
2: was really hard but it, it it was worth it for sure you know especially now that I'm starting this production company with ABC Studios what wow. Uh, which is very exciting ever heard of them yeah <laughs> <laughs> um and so I, I called it Tiny Reparations and um it's really I really sort of wanted to carry forward the mission of Two Dope Queens which is. I wanted to have, you know, stories from women, people of color, queer people, and really have them be the leads and the heroes of their stories rather than the best friend, rather than like the assistant. And so, I mean, I think that is sort of like my next evolution as a a person in this industry Mm -hmm. is that. Yes, I have this cool platform for myself, but I want to open it up for other people. Yeah. And um, I have, like, an amazing, you know, Latino head of development. And it's just really cool that we're in this space and just sort of, you know, we're trying to just make it happen and yeah. have some different stuff out there. The first thing on the docket is a 10-episode order of a talk show for Comedy Central. Um you're the host I'm the host that's incredible it's really cool oh my gosh um and the basic premise is that uh because I'm such a workaholic I don't know how to do kind of anything like I can't ride a bike I don't know how to drive I can't swim I've never gotten a tattoo I'm afraid of heights I can barely cook so there's all these things that I'm incapable I'm not athletic and so I want to sit down with Different people, whether it's like a Jameela Jamil or yeah. Michelle Obama. Yeah. And so it's part interview where we get to know them and then they teach me how to do yes. something that I don't know how to do. Um, so I'm really you're excited. like best
0: friends with Michelle at oh, this point, I wish. right? <laughs> oh, my gosh.
2: She's oh the my- best. She's truly just the real deal. It's real it's amazing. She's so inspiring. Um so that would be like a really fun yeah, sort it of it sounds fun. It already show. sounds
0: funny. Yeah. Like, are you gonna actually try things? Yeah. Oh, that's funny.
2: So I have employees now. I have three employees. Yeah. Which, you know, and last year I had like I went from no employees to three. And I think the biggest thing is I've learned how to be a boss. And I think a lot a lot of times people think when I'm in charge, it's going to be like, you know, I'm just going to be making money. And, I'm taking- <laughs> so and I wasn't easy. like that, yeah. but it was definitely, you know, i sit down with my business managers and go over insurance packages and talk about medical leave and make sure NDAs are signed. Yep. And the other thing is sort of managing all your employees' expectations and making sure you have that one-on-one time mm-hmm. to make sure they feel valued and they feel nurtured. And so it's a lot of it feels like even though they work for you, you kind of also work for them. 100%. And that's, I think, the thing that I didn't really realize. And then I was like, oh, okay. So I make sure to do the check-ins and um, make sure to encourage people's contributions. and All those things where it just, it is so much more collaborative. I do think I feel the most pressure because it's my face and my name. Absolutely. And no one's going to care about it as much as I do. Absolutely. Um, But... It's, you know, it's delegating and letting other people into the fold Mm -hmm. and that sort of thing, I Mm -hmm. think, has been the biggest lesson. And and I think it's allowed me to sort of level up and be able to take on these new sorts of responsibilities, even if I don't have a lot of experience doing it prior to that. Mm -hmm. I feel like I've become a, a good or a quick learner because I can sort of just be in the moment and be like, okay, this is going to be a place where I have to learn. Yeah. So it allows yeah. you to be open. I think. Yeah. 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 And it's just a, a lot of like, you know, sometimes whether it's my assistant Amanda or my office coordinator, my, they will have a good idea. And I would make sure in an email to be like, Oh, Amanda's ha- brought this idea. I think that's really great. And I think it's important to give that credit. It's of yeah. course, like it's all it all. It doesn't really matter. Cause it's all, we're all working together, mm-hmm. but those moments Allow the person to be like, oh, I'm being seen. I'm seen. seen. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, absolutely.
0: Yeah. I am taking my four children away this weekend to go skiing. And I think if you're a parent like me, you understand how important it is to have a kitchen available to you when you have four kids, which is why Airbnb is always the place that I head to just make the vacation easier. traveltexas.com dot slash get your own
1: We've built impact theory and over time kind of evolved. And I was, you know, the executive producer and the, you know, behind the scenes and getting stuff done. And Tom was in front of the camera and then me having evolved in stepping in front of the camera, building a bit more confidence, but then writing the book, it really is funny. And I don't know if you've ever felt like this. It kind of felt like every time I try something new, I go back to like being the the total newbie, the, the step one, this is day one. And it used to really fear me. But what I've noticed that has happened in my life, I've always had the fear on day one now that kind of fear has turned into a bit of an excitement even though I had like utter fear about writing a book because I was like who the hell would buy a book from me that was actually the first words out of my mouth Rachel when I spoke to my husband Tom I was like who would buy books from me babe um and so yeah so it's actually been really fun to kind of learn be the learner Um, you know, obviously look at, like, let me just say this. Like, I absolutely looked back at your books and I like reread them. And I was like, what is the things that make, obviously it's you and your voice, but it's like, I'm such a, a, such a student. That, like, if I'm doing content, I'll look at the best pieces of content and say, What do they do? And what's the Lisa version? Yeah. And so, with the book, I literally did the same. I was like, What are all the books I absolutely love? And what did they do? So, I literally picked up your book, girl, and I was like, All right, Rachel freaking knows what she's doing. (laughs) So, I just went in and I was like, Oh, that's a smart strategy. I see what she did there, you know? And, um, and so it really was like, Turn to the people that freaking inspire you and use that as like your superpower. And once upon a time, that would have been, um, actually detrimental to my self-esteem because i think i would have i wouldn't have seen you as inspiration i think i would have seen it as like in being inferior competition all these things that we're told right. as women growing up you know and obviously as adults and us being friends it's like being able to even just turn to you and text you and be like any advice you've got on writing a book <laughs> it's like that's the beauty of being a woman to in today's society and i think the beauty about having friends that really have your back so um yeah it's the journey the li- literary agent turned to tom and was like would lisa be interested in writing a book and so the very first words out of my mouth when um oh so first of all actually i just laughed at tom i was like oh that's sweet and i kind of went back to work he's like "Babe, what, what the hell are you talking about like this is a serious offer from a serious agent and i was like well babe who would buy a book for me and that was like the first words out of my mouth rage. And this is after we've built Quest Nutrition that was a billion dollar company, Impact Theory, where we've got over half a billion views on our content. It's like the naive, the not the naive, the insecure 14 year old Lisa is still there. And so right. in that moment, I was like, oh, bless, she never goes away. You know, and kind of just <laughs> gave myself a bit of the, <laughs> a bit of the grace. And then after that, I was like, okay, well, what am I going to write a book about? It has to be something that very feels like me. I don't want it to be a, you know, a bio because I didn't feel quite right. I was like, I'm still on such a journey. I don't want to write a book about my life. And so people kept saying about confidence. And I was like, who are they talking about? Like, it doesn't feel like I have the confidence. So when people keep asking me on like Q&As, on IG lives, like Lisa, where do you get your confidence from? I was like, what the hell are they seeing? Because inside my head, I'm not nice to myself, Rach. I don't mm. say to myself, yeah, Lisa, you're a badass. You got it. No, no. The voice in my head says, what the hell do you think you're doing? Like, yeah. there is no way you, Lisa, but you can write a book. Like th- there's that negative voice that just never goes away. And so I was like, oh, people see that I just move forward. People see that I step in front of the camera. People see that I just write a book. And so they think that that comes from confidence, but actually it doesn't at all. It comes from not feeling competent, uh, confident, not feeling competent and not actually having the skill set. but going, you know what, even though I feel the fear, I'm going to put together a set of tools in order to keep moving forward. So when I feel fear of going on stage, what am I going to do? If I feel fear of writing a book, what am I going to do? Because I cannot let the fear and insecurity stop me. And so that's what ended up being the book. I was like, this is kind of like this weird inception moment where it's like, (laughs) you know, I have zero courage or zero confidence to write a book. And so I write a book about not having confidence to do things. So first of all is um, I talk about the purgatory of the mundane. Mm. So recognizing that you're in the purgatory of the mundane. Now, when I say that, I mean, for eight years, my life was just mundane enough. I never hit rock bottom. And I don't know about you, Rach, how many incredible people have you met where their life pivoted and changed because they hit rock bottom, Mm -hmm. because they sat there and said, I've got nothing else to lose. Yeah, that's so real. But the people like me who didn't, the people that didn't have that jolt awake. And so in these eight years where I stayed home just to support my husband, to take care of him, to really provide, you know, I cooked for him, I cleaned for him. I was in purgatory because I never felt like I could speak up. And that wasn't a him thing, that was a me thing. I thought I needed the confidence to speak up and say I wasn't happy. I also thought, how freaking ungrateful am I To say, I want to be happy. I want a different life when I have a husband that loves me, when I have a roof over my head. So it's like this weird thing that happened with gratitude, where I started using gratitude in the first journey of my life, the first year or two, where I was like, I know why I'm doing this. I'm supporting my husband because we're going to go out and make enough money to make movies. So I used gratitude every time I was bored, every time I was like, really, this is my life. I would use the gratitude to help me through. And I think it's beautiful. Whenever we focus on the negative, have something that is positive in your life. Yeah. The problem was rage after year two, after year three, after year four, after year seven, I kept using gratitude as a way to self soothe the deep unhappiness I ended up having. Mm. And that I think is what kept me stuck for eight years. Because I was like, how ungrateful am I? So I think the purgatory of the mundane is really for people to acknowledge. Like it's the pausing of your life and just saying, am I actually happy? Is this actually the life I want? Or am I living in this type of purgatory of the mundane where I'm using gratitude? I'm using all these techniques that a lot of us talk about that absolutely can help. But is it serving you? Is it serving your life? And is it serving your dreams? So I think first of all, it really is sitting there and saying, what is the life you want? Like really, just sitting with no judgment and just writing it down, and that was the thing for me. It's like I wanted to make movies, but to your point, is we use these mini little distractions, and it's what I actually call in the book "kill the squirrel," because you know the dog where it's like it's doing something, oh, and the squirrel comes, <laughs> and it's like, squirrel. It like it becomes a great distraction. And yeah. so it really is about sitting there saying, "What life do you want?" And starting to identify what are the squirrels in your life. But when I became a stay-at-home wife, and when I say stay-at-home wife, I really want people to hear that wasn't my dream. It wasn't something that fulfilled me. And so I say it as that marker, but if being a stay-at-home wife is something, like I really freaking applaud people that are doing what they love. It wasn't what I loved. So I need to give context there for a second. So when I was... A stay-at-home wife and I was taking care of Tom after that first year and a half the squirrel that I was using as you know things to do uh, to keep my attention or to distract me from my unhappiness was my weight and so I Looking back now, I was every single morning, I was weighing myself every single morning. Did I lose a pound? Did I put on a pound? I was going to the gym, I was running on a treadmill, counting calories, beating myself up the night before. I had like an extra handful of nuts or whatever, or not even nuts, like a sugar-free freaking popsicle, girl. I was beating myself over. Right. And so When people think about what are the unhealthy behaviors they have in their lives, it was like, it stemmed when I was 16. I wasn't popular. I was teased for my looks as a kid. So I, you know, very much was concerned of how I looked. When I got married, I found a man that loved me, a man that accepted me for who I was. So all my unhealthy behaviors actually started to disappear because I started to find, not even confidence, but just started to really feel settled in who I was. Mm -hmm. And so now in looking back, a big thing that ended up happening was as I started to get more and more unhappy, as I started to lose all my hopes and my dreams of making movies and being in Hollywood and doing these big grand dreams that we had, I started to use my weight and like the number on the scale as a distraction. Mm -hmm. Um, And so the big thing is I didn't realize I was doing it. Like, I didn't realize. Or if I did, to be honest, let's face it, we have that sometimes that whisper in our head. So I think the big first step is to, to recognize if you're in the purgatory and mundane, is like, what, what is the things that make you light up? And then write a list of maybe even just what do you do on a day-to-day? Like, as if it's like your calendar. And then next to it, say why you do it. And what is the purpose behind it? And if it leads to that dream that you want yeah and then if you find yourself saying wow for four days I didn't do anything towards that dream it's like okay now you have to actually ask yourself um Am I on, you know, on this hamster wheel and using the squirrels as a distraction? You have to know what that dream goal is. And you have to put like, you know, your chips down and say, this is the life I really want. And it doesn't mean that it's going to be easy. It doesn't mean the journey is going to be easy at all, but then it just allows you to look at your calendar to your point or to look at the things that are coming to you and saying, does this align with what I actually want in life? Because what I realized is, you know, at least my own journey, it didn't happen overnight, Rach. It was One little choice I made each day, every day for eight years. And so in order to get out of it, instead of me hoping that I'm going to change my life and it's going to happen today, it's like I actually gave myself the grace to go, okay, to be the person I want to be, to get to that dream, it's going to also take one small little choice on a daily basis in the right direction. And when things come at you, whether it's family and it sounds exciting or a business opportunity that sounds exciting, it's like I need to know what my North Star is. Because how the hell I got stuck for eight years, I kept telling myself, oh, well, one day I'll do this when I'll do this when my husband's happy. I'll do this when we have enough money. I'll do this when I have children. And we all know the when may never come. To me,
0: being healthy
3: You know, Somebody once said to me that a career is a marathon and not a sprint. And I would say that has definitely been the case for me. I started actually in uh, California, in Hollywood. I've worked in writing. I've worked in film editing, believe it or not. And I am now a banker. So wow. if you can figure out how I got <laughs> from point A to point B, uh, you're better than I. But I, I just kind of followed the road and... Kept taking opportunities, and now I, I run most of the corporate functions, strategy, digital transformation at U.S. Bank and having a great time. I suppose at the most literal, if people follow you, then you're a leader. Even if you're a mom and your kids are following you and, and doing what you say, you're a leader. I think if your friends are asking you for advice, you're a leader. I think everybody uh, has elements of leadership within them. I think most women, and I hope it's changing, but I think especially for me growing up, I mean, nobody ever told you you were a leader as a woman. Like, in fact, the opposite, right? You were not expected to be a leader. I remember many times trying to lead and being told, hey, better not do that anymore, right? So I I do think that everybody does have it inside of them. And for me, I think it was um, more, I was motivated to actually achieve, for me i overcame i had i had so many confidence issues to be honest with you that i overcame just because i kept trying to achieve and kept trying to achieve and it it just kind of led me to a place where i achieved <laughs> because I just kept I kept trying and I certainly over the past few years especially I've had this conversation with myself over and over again looking back I think you know what could I have done differently what should I have done differently I wish I would have stood up for other women more than I did maybe early in my career I, I just think that it has been a, a different road for women than it's for men certainly in my industries I think in any industry and I do think it's changing but I still think it's that way. I think my humor was always something that I used to help people uh, get the message, but without being so, you know, poignant about it or direct. Um, I remember uh, making a joke once in a in an executive meeting that it felt like a Robert Palmer video, and I remember <laughs> <laughs> I remember the only other woman in the room coming to me afterwards and saying that was awesome. Everybody got your point but they were laughing instead of feeling badly about it, but you made your point. So I do think oh, that if good. you think about communicating in a way that that you get your point across, but you don't have to be mean about it. You can be constructive yeah. and humorous and really make the point. You just keep going. You put one foot in front of the other. You don't let anybody take away your voice or your power. You're going to have moments where you just feel awful and you just keep going. <laughs> You just keep going. So the thing that I really um, dislike about, you know, I've been sitting on women's panels for so long and women always say like, you can have it all. And I remember feeling like inside, like you can, like I'm doing something wrong. Cause I do not feel like I have it all. What am I doing wrong? And I think right. the imposter syndrome is the same thing. Like, I think we all feel just like messy right? Yeah. It's messy and we don't always feel confident. We don't always, and guess what? We don't always know what we're doing for real. Like it's not even an imposter syndrome. Sometimes I'm going, I don't know how to do that. Absolutely. And you just do it. You just do it. So one thing, one trick I learned early on was to pose your thought as a question because it's easier on you and you you probably have to have a little bit less confidence to do it. So instead of like making a point about something, you could say, have you ever thought of this? Or I wonder if we did it this way. And I'm not suggesting that that's the right thing, but I do think it's easier to get your voice in that way. And I will tell you that, again, I go back to humor. I think humor is like your secret, can be your secret weapon because I cannot tell you how many times still I sit around a table and I'll say something and then a man around the table will say the exact same thing. Like, right. Right. But now, instead of being quiet about it, I go to the person next to me. Did you just hear that? Didn't I just say that a few minutes ago? I yep. have the confidence now. I don't care anymore. I'll say that. Just to make a point, some leaders that you're, if you're in a meeting, some leaders actually want everybody to speak up. And I think, again, men are better at this traditionally than women are. So they, they do value volume. <laughs> they value input. Yeah. They value volume. Even if you don't have much to say, I think if you're silent in a meeting with a leader like that, you're going to be noticed because you're not participating. So I think noticing if that's the kind of leader you're with, make sure to say something, I know maybe half a poker chip use. But but I think other leaders will value exactly that, You know, being really good, choosing your words carefully, using that poker chip well. But I do think it, you have to pay attention to the circumstances that you're in in order to make sure that you're... Uh, viewed in the right way by that leader. You know, one of the mistakes that I see people make the most is they say, you know, they, they say basically, I, Hey, I need a job. I can do anything. I can do anything. And I always say, that's the worst thing to do. It's the worst thing to put on your bio. Make sure to your point, exactly that people know exactly what you are. Are you a dog? Are you a cat? Are you a coyote? Are you a bear? Because don't make people imagine and use their brain to figure out what you are. You figure it out for them. And that will definitely do you a lot more than being a generalist at anything. And I think a lot of people don't know what their special thing is. You know, I tell uh, a lot of the women that I mentor to go and ask the people around you, your family, your friends, your colleagues, ask them to give three attributes that describe you, three adjectives, three attributes. And then you start to hear that from people and you start to, a a picture of kind of your unique you evolves. Because I do think a lot of people don't even know what makes them special.
4: So I had terrible skin when I moved to New York when I was 18. I was a personal trainer trying to make enough money to go to university because I was supposed to go to Columbia. And so I was a personal trainer. My skin got very bad. I learned how to give facials. Then I started giving facials to other people who wanted to pay me to do it. So I opened a really small little facial place. It was called Let's Face It. And I had that for (laughs) two years and then moved into a bigger place and hired a couple of, of girls, and we all did my technique of facials. And then I opened a spa called Bliss. And three years into Bliss, LVMH came and bought a majority part of Bliss. Um, and then I stayed for another five years with Bliss and had kind of done everything that I knew how to do there. So I decided to take a break. But I took a break for about six months and then thought I really miss the beauty industry. And I started another business called Soap and Glory. Mm-hmm. Um, and then I started another business in footwear called Fit Flop uh-huh. um, because I don't, I had this idea about a flip-flop that everybody could afford. I'm, I'm I'm, all about the affordable, right? Yes. Because I wanted something that would really help people with their posture and alignment and that would kind of make the most out of walking. Mm-hmm. So, you know, I used to be a personal trainer. So mm-hmm. that still comes along. I always want to kind of be healthy and, you know, aligned and make people have a lot of energy. And I thought, well, if we do it as a flip-flop, everyone can afford it mm-hmm. because flip-flops should be inexpensive. Mm-hmm. Now, of course, we ended up designing this technology that isn't that easy because there are three different densities of EVA inside the midsole, and it's kind of a little more expensive than a normal flip-flop to make, but still quite affordable. Mm -hmm. Um, And so then, let's see, I had Soap & Glory, flip Flop, ended up selling Soap & Glory to Alliance Boots Walgreens, Mm -hmm. who's all like one Mm -hmm. big, in 2000, and I'm going to say 14. Um, And was this in the UK? Yes. Okay. But... Soap and Glory is also uh, in Ulta now, mm-hmm. I think, mm-hmm. and was in Sephora, mm-hmm. and so we had distribution in the UK, and the US, and also in Asia, and um, and then FitFlop is now in sixty four countries. That's incredible. Yeah, and it's you know I actually ordered myself a couple of pairs and I ended up giving them away last night to somebody <laughs> who was I was at dinner with, and she has my foot size, so I'm I'm now you know FitFlopless. <laughs> <laughs> Feels like you you could call someone, maybe. I'm going to call someone. (laughs) I just don't have any room in my luggage. So I'm getting more. And then, okay, so I still have Fit Flop, sold Sylvan Glory, decided then to take a little break. But, and, you know, think about what would be my next beauty industry thing because I just love making products Mm -hmm. and I love making great products. I'm really good at it. Yeah. That's my thing. Yeah. I like to build the community Mm -hmm. because I like to make people happy. Mm -hmm. So I try to build products that really delight people Mm because I feel like life can be so hard. Mm -hmm. And I like to also, you know, Bliss was really a a spa, but to make people feel good Mm -hmm. because I noticed that so many of my customers were, you know, A, having problems with their skin. When I solved that, they had problems with their stress. Mm -hmm. So I wanted to create a place where they could go and it wasn't judgmental and it wasn't too fancy, but it was a great service Mm -hmm. and they felt loved yeah and they left just feeling elevated, mm-hmm. and so people would literally book their appointments for two years in advance, so that they got their that. slot, yeah, right, so they had Tuesday night at six thirty, and they were not letting it go if it was once a month mm-hmm. and you know they would they would try and swap with somebody else <laughs> if they couldn't make it for some work reason or whatever i mean it some people would even book every two weeks just so they'd have it. And then they would cancel and we could get somebody in from the waiting list. But wow. it was we we really delivered on that, you know, promise of relieving people of their stress. It was supposed to be a holiday, so you could, you know, not leave town but you'd get away. Yeah. And so I guess every business I do is to try and make people's life better. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, knowing that women love beauty products and knowing that they're just so expensive now mm-hmm. and that even I don't want to buy them at retail. Mm-hmm. Beauty Pie was kind of the one, the culmination of many years of trying to build communities, trying to make people happy, trying to give them something better, so it's an evolution of ideas. Um because I love doing the product. Mm-hmm. I mean, without an excellent, excellent, excellent product, you don't have a business. Yes. You're Anybody so right. can do average. You're so right. right? Shoes have to fit. Yeah, You've got to be comfortable. Mm-hmm. You, They have to be the ones that when you're packing your bag to go somewhere, you always put them in. Yeah,
0: that's right? so
4: real. And if you think about that and you think about also your moisturizers, your makeup, your whatever, you take the stuff that you know you can't live without. Mm-hmm. So that's kind of how I edit down. It's like, If I am testing this product and I have to give it back to the girls in the NPD department, Mm -hmm. do I feel distraught? (laughs) (laughs) And if I do, I know it's good enough. Yeah, that's so real. Yeah, but everything else, like, you know, if it's average, I bother. Yeah. It's my best idea yet, but it is (laughs) the one where I actually had the, oh my God, I'm terrified to do this. And then, oh my God, I'd be terrified if I didn't do it. Yeah. So it was one of those, When I came up with the idea for Beauty Pie, and having been in the industry for 30 years already, which is probably what brought me to the point where I would be able to do this because I've got so many contacts, so much experience, I know how it all works, I probably couldn't do it before. Um, but it was a really radical, disruptive idea that I had to kind of lean into because at first, my first reaction to having the idea to do a buyer's club for luxury beauty where it was totally transparent and we kind of unveiled all the smoke and mirrors of the industry was, oh my God, everyone's going to hate me. Yeah. <laughs> and then I thought, but wait, millions of women are going to love, love you. <laughs> <me>. <laughs> and then I thought, well, you know what, what's really best for, you know, the majority of the people who will experience this. Yes, there'll be some industry kickback. Some people will hate me for, you know, lifting the veil. But there are so many people who are going to benefit from being able to buy a higher quality product for like a fraction. I'm not even talking a fraction, but a fraction, a tenth of the price that they would normally pay at retail. So it's kind of my dream job now, Mm -hmm. having been in the industry for so long, to launch something that is just all about what I want to do and nothing about what I don't want to do. Yeah. And I was in between having Soap & Glory, where I had my skincare from Soap and & Glory, and I had sold Soap and & Glory, and I was just doing Fit Flop. And I forgot a moisturizer when I packed to go to Shenzhen to work on a collection. And I was going to be there for about two weeks, and it was in October. So it's dry, and it's quite cold, and your know, factories are not heated. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so everyone just wears, like, a unique low-out yeah. ultralight down. Yeah. and then you And you're working all day, so it's not freezing cold, but mm-hmm. it's not warm, mm-hmm. and you get dry the skin and i remember getting off the flight and thinking oh, sh- shit i forgot yeah. my moisturizer yeah. could i say that yeah totally okay. okay so i forgot my moisturizer and i went into a duty free on the way out of the airport and all the moisturizers like the you know the ones that i would consider good cuz i would generally buy kind of a luxury quality mm-hmm. were 150 bucks mm-hmm. i know how much that costs to make i'm not paying 150 yeah. bucks for a moisturizer <laughs> so i literally Didn't moisturize for two weeks because I couldn't bear to pay (laughs) when I knew that this moisturizer probably finished goods. And, you know, the bigger the company, usually the cheaper the cost of goods Mm -hmm. is. So it was probably five bucks. Yeah. I was not going to pay $150 (laughs) for it. So, and then I thought, well, why should anybody? Yeah. Right? Like if I'm not going to and I could afford it. Why should anybody? Yeah. And then, you know, I had all these different points of light where as I I kind of thought about what I wanted to do next, because I hadn't come up with the idea for Beauty Pie yet, that kind of fed into what should I really do next? What could be, you know, my big, you know, I try and evolve, Mm -hmm. you know, I think the meaning of life is evolution. Yes. So if I have one idea, I try and learn from it and then what I've learned from that, apply it to the next idea or the next idea and do as much as I can to make that even better. Mm -hmm. And so beauty pie is kind of everything that I've learned and then stripping out the part that I don't like, which is kind of that smoke, mirrors, fakery, telling Mm -hmm. people that something's worth something when it's really not and just really being able to have this beautiful community where you surprise people all the time. And they can spoil themselves, but... Is not expensive, yeah. but it's super high quality. I mean, it's so delightful to receive a box of stuff when you haven't had to pay that much. Mm-hmm. You got to choose it, and it's all just world-class. Yeah, It's really beautiful. I am the Executive Vice President
5: and Chief Marketing Officer at Kate Spade & Company. Um, so I oversee marketing for both the Kate Spade New York and the Jack Spade brands. Um, I've been in role for four years um, doing doing the chief marketing officer role. And I came to Kate Spade most recently from the Walt Disney Company, where I worked for 13 years, in a variety of roles. I started in primarily in licensing, um, which I also run today at Kate Spade New York. It is a wonderful opportunity to learn about sales and about branding and about uh, product extensions. So I did that had the opportunity to launch the Disney Princess brand. So today it feels like a mainstay, but uh, for every kind of two to six-year-old girl. But when I got there, it, it didn't exist. Um, and so we launched the Disney Princess brand, and that was uh, one of the most fun things I did the Walt Disney Company. Um, and then prior to that, I started my career in fashion. So I started at Ann Taylor and then went to Ralph Lauren, both in marketing, traditional marketing roles, and really started kind of my love of marketing there. And I'm a brand person, not a fashion Mm -hmm. person. So Mm -hmm. I think that fashion companies do superb marketing, which is why I've spent time at three of them. Mm -hmm. Um, But really, I love telling stories and I love great brands. One of the things that I always try to keep my uh, team aware of, and I try to stay aware of is that we have more content, more information being thrown at us today in any one minute than um, we could pretty much consume in our lifetime. There is so much happening. Um, And then on top of that, the average attention span is now on par with that of a goldfish. So we lost our attention span. We have so much content coming at us the importance of marketing is telling your story. It's giving consumers a reason to care. There Mm -hmm. is so many choices for them. And the choice isn't just, you know, should I buy um, that macrame plant plant holder or not? The choice is, should I even spend time looking for that or should I spend my time doing any number of other things that are there and out there competing for my attention? Um, Mm -hmm. So you really have to tell your story. And people want to shop someplace experience something, spend time with something um, that they care about. So you have to give people a reason to care. I think everything that's evolved in marketing is so incredibly exciting because mm. it, it gives you so many more opportunities to be in touch with the customer. Um, you know, I, I just came to speaking to a gr- internal group and was reminding everybody that every single thing we do every single day um, is either making a positive impact on a customer or a negative impact on a customer or just mm-hmm. as badly, uh, a neutral impact on the customer. So there really are tremendous opportunities to engage with her or him, depending on what you're marketing. And I think the changes, you know, You really just have to look at your own life. And so often marketers are thinking about their industry. You're thinking about this amorphous customer um, who takes on a bunch of stats and figures. Just look at your own life. You spend most of your life attached to your phone. Yep. And so if all of a sudden you're sitting in a meeting and reviewing marketing and it's not being shown to you on your phone, then you know you've just missed out <laughs> first and foremost. Because yeah. it used to be I would get presented everything as a two-page spread. Nothing gets shown to me as a two-page spread anymore. Everything gets mm-hmm. shown to me on my phone because it's the way the customer's looking at it. Yes. Um, if you're realizing in your life that you never look at anything with the sound on – No one looks at anything with the sound on. Mm. Um, Everybody looks at everything with the sound off. Nobody looks at it for more than 30 seconds. It's really just about staying in touch with how real people live. They don't take your great commercial or your spot or your Instagram post and project it up onto a television. Um, They absolutely act and behave just the way that... You know, you and I do, Um, Mm -hmm. and it's a conversation you're having with her, and you're able to have that conversation in such a direct way. When when a social media post comes through, I always try to remember and remind my team. You know, our our ad, effectively, our Instagram post may follow the announcement of a best friend's birth. It may follow um, a cute picture of your boyfriend's dog. It's right in there, in the direct mix with people's real lives and Mm -hmm. that is an enormous privilege that you need to bear in mind in everything that we do but the ability to have that direct conversation now there's chat bots coming through things like Facebook messaging Mm -hmm. where we're going to be able to have direct conversations with consumers um, right where they're corresponding with their aunt or their sister or their husband Um, and being able to be both using that to our brand advantage but also incredibly respectful of the privilege that that is to be so close to the customer so frequently. I believe strongly that the insides of your brand have to match the outside. So whatever your company stands for, your culture in the building or the
2: room or the
5: um, you know garage where you work um, has to match what you're putting out into the universe. A few brands are successful for a short period of time with having those two things being um, out of whack, but not mm-hmm. in the long term. Mm-hmm. So at Kate Spade, Some of our core values are being smart and confident and joyful and unique and fun. We can't be a very quiet, boring, very, you know, overly intense place. We have to be a place that's overall give when you leave the office is happy. Mm -hmm. Um, And that's what you'll find. And it's a very, very important part. People do their best work in a place that's positive, in a place that's reassuring, in a place that inspires them and provides them with vision. They don't operate in their best under fear, um, or in place when they're unhappy. So we spend a lot of time making sure that we're communicating with people, that they're clear on what the vision is and that they're having a good time. I mean, our brand promise is to inspire women to lead a more interesting life. Um, Mm -hmm. if I have a bunch of people here who work, you know, 18 hour days and are miserable, they're not going to be able to put that messaging out into the world. Um, so we have things like year round half day Fridays because we want people to have an interesting life. And if they're always here, they're definitely not taking advantage of New York or New Jersey or wherever they might be living to work with us. We have a sabbatical program at Kate Spade, New York, so that people can go off and pursue something that's very interesting. We have a lot of cupcakes. We have a lot of (laughs) um, baby showers. We're 85% women. So there's a lot of baby showers and wedding showers and birthday celebrations. We just have fun during the day. We're not curing cancer. Um, Um, We're making handbags. And so we try to bear that in mind and really make sure that, again, our insides match our outsides. You know, I think we were just having a conversation about, um, I sat at a dinner one night and someone said to me that getting dressed each morning is the one creative decision that every single person on the planet makes each day. Mm. And it is true that how we dress, regardless of what field we work in, does make an impression in the world, whatever that is, good, bad, otherwise. So I think it's important no matter what you're doing to put out, you know, A little bit about who you are. It certainly Mm -hmm. isn't the only thing that people should judge us on, but it's often one of the first things that you would see. Again, as I mentioned earlier, I'm not a fashion person. I have a very classic style of dressing, but I do like to present in a confident way. I like to show Mm up, um, in a way that makes it clear that I'm a leader within the organization, that I have confidence in myself. Um, I believe feminine is incredible. Being feminine is incredibly powerful. And so I don't shy away from that at all, especially Mm. not at Kate's Bay, New York. Um, <laughs> but you also have to be very comfortable. I mean, I worked, uh, when I worked at Ralph La- Lauren way back in the nineties, they would rig you. They would kind of put together outfits for you to wear. Um, really? and I remember the first time that I was rigged and I had all these little Polaroid pictures of what I should be dressing. The, they didn't know me very well. Um, and I ended up with an outfit that had a ton of accessories, just a scarf, um, a bunch of bracelets, um, a jacket. And every time I wore it, I was so, um, Confused and sort of discombobulated by what was going on <laughs> with myself physically, that I couldn't be my best self. And so, making sure that you're dressing to uh, give yourself the advantage, especially in an important meeting, make sure you're wearing something that's going to allow you to be confident. One of the things I love about Kate Spade is that I know when I wear a Kate Spade dress that Deborah's our chief creative officer, that she always puts that hook in the dress that hooks in your bra strap. Yes, because there's nothing worse so than key. standing up in front of a group of people and you feel it creeping down your Thank arm. You. um She is never going to cut so that you have a muffin top. She is always <laughs> going to make sure that whatever cut she has. And you know that you're going to stand up after sitting down for a while and not be covered in your front and wrinkles. Those are important things to think Absolutely. about because, you know, our clothing gives us confidence in some ways and we need to feel confident in what we're doing. It is Thankfully, both Jack and Kate share a lot of similarities in in terms of the um, girl and guy's approach to the world. They are definitely optimistic, glass half full people. They are optimistic, but not perfect. Um, There Mm -hmm. definitely isn't a perfection there. They know their own, own mistakes, their own areas of opportunity, and they fully embrace those. They are people in progress. And so that aspect, we market to both as mindsets, not demographics. So, I'm not spending all day thinking about a guy who's 25 to 34 years old or a woman who's 25 to 34 years old. I'm thinking about these fully formed characters that we've created of Jack Spade and Kate Spade. Mm-hmm. Um, so, in that way, they're very similar. It's just a slightly different story that you're telling um, and a slightly different product, obviously, that you're working with. But in terms of the type of information that you want to know, um, over the past year, we worked very hard for a long time. Jack Spade, he was kind of like the the kid brother, and he was mm-hmm. the, the kid brother that maybe has to sit at the kids' table during Thanksgiving, even though he's like 27 years old. Um, <laughs> so we we have upgraded him to her best friend, her spouse, her partner, however you want to view it. So he has really come a long way in terms of sophistication and approach, but we take the same thing. We give our customer and our, our this character of the Kate Spade girl and the Jack Spade guy a huge amount of respect. Everything we do comes from a place of respect, admiration, just so impressed with who these people are and who they're becoming. Um, And that, that informs everything that we do.
0: The Rachel Hollis podcast is produced by me, Rachel Hollis. It's edited by Andrew Weller and Jack Noble.
4: I'm Cindy Lauper. My psoriasis was all over, even on my scalp which may mean four times the risk for psoriatic arthritis, but Cosentix works on
5: both. Cosentix secukinumab is prescribed for adults with moderate to severe plaque psoriasis 300-milligram dose and adults with active psoriatic arthritis 150-milligram dose. Don't use if you're allergic to Cosentix. Before starting, get checked for TB. Serious allergic reactions, severe skin reactions that look like eczema, and an increased risk of infections, some fatal, have occurred. Cosentix may lower ability to fight infections, so tell your doctor if you have an infection or symptoms like fevers, sweats, chills, muscle aches, or cough, had a vaccine or plan to, or if IBD symptoms develop or worsen. Learn more at Cosentix.com or 1-844-COSENTIX. Ask your doctor about Cosentix.
2: It's your time. Join global thought leader, executive producer, and New York Times bestselling author T.D. Jakes and today's leading culture shifters for an experience unlike any other.